Today's scripture reading can be found in Luke 23, 32-35. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Well, good morning. Good to be back. It's always something of a small miracle, it feels like, to arrive home after a travel like this that I've been on. For those of you who are visiting or don't know what's been going on, uh, 10 of us from this church and a number from other churches making up a group of about 30 from our West region went to the Holy Land, to Israel, and spent what we'd hoped would be a 10-day trip, ended up being a nine because of snowstorms in New York. We were supposed to leave a week ago Wednesday, found out that our flight was canceled because they didn't want to land in snow and ice and flurries and wind. Imagine that. And so we caught a non-stop the next day. And then coming home, if you've ever done this, it's quite an ordeal. Um, we left Tel Aviv at 1 in the morning and arrived back here around 12.45 the next day. So 12.15, something like that. So it's about... 23 hours of travel solid following an 18-hour day, and I think I got all of four or five hours sleep in that time, so I'm running on something. Got some sleep last night, thank goodness. Great to be with you. Well, you've heard several mentions of uh, things seasonally that are happening, and I want to try to tie it together. Over the next seven weeks, If you have a minute, glance at your bulletin and read the pastor's notes, pastor's journal, pastor's whatever it happens to be entitled. Because it will tie into the theme that we're pursuing and and what's going to be happening. For those of you who've been with us long term, you know that this last year uh, we actually had a Maundy Thursday service at Easter followed by a cooperative Good Friday service and actually did a Sunday morning service. Uh, service as well, in addition to our regular Sabbath services. And we'll be doing that again this year. But last year we did not have uh, anything really leading up to that. And uh, we've gone from Advent to uh, Christmas time to Epiphany. And now we're uh, looking at the season of Lent. And my goal, our goal collectively, is not to. Catholicize Adventism, it's to say for millennia now, the church has paid attention to the rhythms of of life seasonally. They've paid attention to spiritual themes seasonally. And we know, while we don't know when when Christmas falls, uh, we know December 25, but we, we know that's not the birth of Christ, we do know when he died exactly when he died. And uh, those times that we can spend uh, building up to not just the death moment, but the resurrection moment on which all of our hopes hang um, are worthwhile. One of our founders, prolific author Ellen White, said it would be good for us to spend time each day contemplating the cross of Christ and the gift that he brings in salvation. 
So since that's the case, and I, I believe that, uh, we're going to take devotionally some time over the uh, next few weeks before Easter comes to remember the seven last words, and they're not really words, they're phrases of Christ that help us sort of identify and understand in a different kind of way the totality of his purpose and mission and what it is that he wanted to accomplish and what he wanted for us spiritually uh, and, and in our lives. So that kind of sets the stage or the backdrop for, for what we're doing uh, next few weeks. Tradition guides these things, and that's neither good nor bad. It, the first of the seven last phrases or words of Christ is the one that we are taking on today. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it is a loaded phrase. Multiple layers of things that contextually exist within that phrase that inform us. You've heard me say, and perhaps others say too, that in all of Christianity, I think one of the most profound and one of the most psychologically sound things that we believe and practice is forgiveness. You'll note the quote from Calvin Miller in the bulletin. What is vengeance? A fair... Yeah, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. A fair, satisfying, and quick way to a sightless, toothless world. Now, that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. And then mercy is something quite different yet again. It's that unusual act of giving thumbs up when you've got an old adversary at the end of your rapier. Now, for those of you who go to the movies, and I know that's only about three of you in this congregation, for those of you who have chosen to see great films, and I know that's only about four or five of you in this congregation, there came out a film with Russell Crowe a few years ago that was violent and epic and absolutely magnificent called Gladiator. I'm not going to ask how many of you have seen it because only four or five of you will raise your hands. <laughs> However, if you have access to a video store, Netflix, if you own a television, I do not advise this for small children by any stretch, but it is a worthwhile film. And in the film, in the gladiator sequences, you will see that the one who stands with his rapier, his sword, ready to finish off an enemy, sometimes consults the fans, sometimes appeals to the audience there at the stadium, at the arena, for a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Or maybe they appeal to the king for a thumb up or a thumb down. The Caesar. So this phrase that Calvin Miller employs is an ancient one in which life is preserved or life is destroyed. 
a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Mercy is the unusual act of giving thumbs up to an old enemy at the end of your rapier. There is an ancient enmity that the Bible describes. We're all familiar with it. You don't need a pounding sermon on it. The enmity is based in mistrust. And if you think about it, isn't that what all enmity is based in? Some of you were pretty quick with that. I'm happy for that. It is. We develop a sense of enmity or animosity because there is a profound, sometimes, mistrust. Now, let me ask you this. Is mistrust sometimes thoroughly warranted? Right. Sometimes we earn mistrust, don't we? Or others earn it from us. Acts of treachery or betrayal. Acts of cruelty. And so forth. These can lead to mistrust and enmity. There was one who told a lie. He said very basic things that contradicted very basic realities. He said, first of all, the one who tells you the truth is not telling you the truth. He's a liar. Lovely little inversion of the truth. And while he says you will surely die, I want to tell you you surely won't. And since neither of you have any experience with death or dying or know anything of the sort, how would you know whether I'm telling you the truth or he's telling you the truth? But look at the fruit. It is good, and I will eat it. And I will tell you that my extraordinary powers of speech, for where else have you seen a talking serpent, have come from this exact fruit. And if you eat it, imagine if I, a lonely servant, a serpent, could eat it and learn to speak and reason with you thus. Imagine what it's going to do for you in your exalted position. Oh, but I'm telling you, the one who made you knows that if you do, you will become like him. You will know good and evil. You will have powers you never thought you could possess. You will have insight into the very nature of what is and what is real. All you have to do is eat. Never heard that version of the translation before, have you? But it sounds like a pretty good deal. And so they ate. It was never the apple. It was never, if you go to certain traditions in religion, it was never human sexuality. It was never any of these, these, these things that were the issue in Eden. It was mistrust. Am I right? Adam and Eve went from a place of trust to mistrust based on a lie. You will not surely die. 
and enmity was born. Several enmities were born. The very nature of things would no longer favor human existence, but humans would have to toil against the odds to make it. That's a huge change. Access to the tree of life would no longer be. And humans are created beings after all. Dust from which we are made is dust. And only God is immortal. Only God is immortal. And his words, the day you eat you shall die, were true. From the moment we reach maturity, we start dying, don't we? I hate this thought, but in boot camp I'm exercising sometimes with 20, 25-year-olds and they routinely kick my behind in whatever we're doing. Almost, always, unless, of course, I really give it the 110% thing. and Then I can't walk the next day, usually. And I have to remind myself that I'm doing good because they have upwards of 25% higher organ function than I do. I'm dying. Every year I live, I'm dying. Enmity was created between the serpent and the woman. Ladies don't like to be lied to. Men don't either. None of us do. And in the course of it all, the saddest enmity of all was created because we entered a, not just an, we didn't have an action or a moment of mistrust, we entered a place of mistrust. We entered a place of fear. We entered a place from being in the garden to a place outside the garden. In the good graces of God to being lost to God. You've heard all of this. And there... But for the grace of God, we would have stayed. Grace changes everything. Forgiveness changes everything. And God said, I will send my son. And he did. We celebrated it at Christmas time. And we learned in Christmas time in Epiphany the kind of God he would be, the kind of thing he would do, the kind of Messiah he would be. And in this period before Easter, and Easter is a resurrection celebration, but you have to have crucifixion before you have resurrection. As we look at the life of Christ and what he goes through in this moment, these words come to us powerfully. 
Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Turn to Luke 23. One of these weeks, next week, maybe the week following, I will take you through the stations of the cross as they are in tradition. And you'll see the whole picture, as it were, of the last week of Christ and what happens after Passover on that Thursday night in the last 24 hours of Christ. And as we get to Luke 23, we're in that 24-hour period. Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been disowned. He's already been mocked. He's already stood before Pilate and before Herod. And now, in 23, he's being crucified. He's being taken away. If you turn to verse 26, you can hear the sequence. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made, it carry, made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. Father, forgive them for they know not 
they're doing. Most of the time I see people enter into conversations of forgiveness or contemplate it. It's usually a percentage. Have you observed this? Especially parents trying to mediate it with children. We don't quite get down to the nitty-gritty. Well, Eric, you're 33% responsible, and Peter, you're 67% possible responsible, or vice versa. But we usually assign everybody some responsibility, don't we? It makes it easier somehow. Do you catch what I mean? I mean, it takes two to tango, is what my mother always said. Have you ever heard that phrase? I don't think she knew that tango was a dance and that Adventists didn't dance at that time because it just didn't seem to mean a whole lot. What does it mean to tango? I think for years I thought it takes two to tangle. That's what I thought it was. What are you going to do? It takes two to tango. And so we have this sort of, uh, yeah, well, you know, I could have done things better, but, you know, I'm sorry, too, kind of, of way of approaching forgiveness. I guess that's okay. I'm, I'm not here to, to denigrate our way of getting it done. But at the end of the day, it says here, this man has done nothing wrong. Mocked by the religious leaders, mocked by the soldiers who are executing him, and mocked by a common thief next to him on a cross that he doesn't deserve to be on. Now, there is no 33% and 67%. I could have handled that a little better. I'm sorry. There's none of that in this picture. This is an innocent who has been cruelly abused and cruelly hung. And his reaction is, Father Forgive them. Forgive them. And I would suggest to you that these words don't just apply to the people who like sheep are led astray. It doesn't just apply to a Sanhedrin whose intent is so focused on the letter of law that they miss the larger picture They're dead in their religious ways rather than alive in the God who invited them to worship him in the first place. It isn't just referring to these horrible Romans, these pagan infidels who have taken over the holy city and who administer life cruelly. And it doesn't just incorporate the common criminal. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he speaks to the largest picture of the enmity that existed between God and man. He let it go. Most of us, sadly, in this world, prefer to hang on to our enmity. And the way is the way 
of death. It is a fair, satisfying, and fast way to a sightless and toothless world. It is the way of insanity. And it is the way of death. In this season, what Christ invites us each to do in his last phrase, one of his last phrases, is to experience the life and the freedom that comes in forgiveness. His and ours. To take even the most egregious, outrageous, unfair circumstances and release them and to transcend them and to become free. Because that, my friends, is what he's done for you and it's what he's done for me. Lord God, his grace that has brought us thus far and grace that's going to take us home. And so for your forgiveness, we give you thanks. And for the courage and the strength to forgive, we ask your blessing. Amen.